Good day. This is Lorraine Lawson, Associate Editor with Bank Automation News. Recently, I spoke with Stephen Thomas, who heads the analytics and AI ecosystem in the Smith School of Business at Queen's University in Ontario, Canada. The Smith School of Business works with Scotiabank and other banks to help ensure AI systems are without bias. I asked Thomas about the work his program is doing with banks and whether it's helping to reach the underbank or unbanked. Yeah, so yeah, there, there's a few efforts going on, going on at Smith and Queens right now, and I'm involved with them. One is, um, uh, and they're related. One is just in general seeing are, are the banks' current lending models biased in any way, and that, like, and this raises a sub questions like, a, how do you even measure bias? Like, um, it, it, there's a lot of devil in the details once you get started, um, but you know as soon as you start defining protected attributes or defining, uh, you know, who's part of a, a minority subgroup or something like that, you can start to make some progress. Uh, so it's like, how do you detect it? Okay. And that lets us measure how good or bad it is. Then how do you fix it? And we got a bunch of kind of irons in the fire trying to figure out how to fix it. One is on the, on the data side, like, okay, that's, you know, the bias might be in the training data, historical training data, the lending decisions in the past. Two is we can, we can adjust the algorithms themselves, the machine learning algorithms themselves to like basically penalize them for making, uh, you know, but what, what humans consider a biased decision. And so the algorithms will not do that. Or then three, we can, um, leave the data alone and the algorithms alone. And then we can just adjust the predictions themselves and, we can adjust what's called the probability threshold of the prediction, basically making it a little bit easier for minority subgroups to get a loan versus to adjust for historical bias. And so all of these methods have their pros and cons, and probably the end solution will be a combination of all three. And so it's so that's kind of a whirlwind on the technical side. I, the bank is planning to use this in many different ways, um, pro, some of which I might not even be aware of, but Basically, they want to, they're aware that the problem exists, um, and they want to fix it. Now, and it's changed over time. They started, um, when they first learned about this problem, they weren't too excited. They're like, well, you know, we're not doing anything illegal, and what you're suggesting is going to cost us a lot of money. So, <laughs> um, but then we, we eventually have come around to realize this is a good thing to do, and it won't cost that much money, and we're going to have to do it anyway. So, <laughs> so that's it- good. So do you work with a lot of banks in, in terms of helping them with their AI? and? We work, we work most closely with Scotia because um, we have the Scotia Bank Center for Customer Analytics. But we have done surveys and, and talks with all the banks in Canada, all the big banks, just to kind of get a, a survey and a lay of the land and see you know, who's doing what. And we realized they were all pretty much the same. I mean, not exactly the same, but there wasn't one who was way ahead of the others or anything like that. Yeah. So have have they been using or have you seen use cases where they're using AI to sort of try to help people get loans that might not, you know, in their credit decisioning to help people get loans that might not typically be eligible for loans? Um, good question. I I mean, that's the goal. Uh, that That's where we're working towards. Has have any of the teams at Scotiabank or any of the other banks actually done it? like live and deployed it, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I might be, I don't want to say no, they haven't, because 
I mean, these banks are huge and they, they move fast. So I, I right. just might not know. I'm wondering, you know, in traditional uh, credit underwriting, we look at everybody looks up Experian or whatever, and they look at your credit rating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So some of the what I've heard about is banks looking at using AI to sort of develop different models that don't rely on your credit rating that look at other things like, do you have a steady paycheck? Have you had an account with us for five years and you're regularly depositing money? You know, that that sort of thing. Have you heard anything about that? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're finding as well as the typical credit reports. Um, they're just. I mean, they use their own model to come up with those numbers, and those models are older, and they have the same flaws that we're talking about. So if our models are based on the output of those models, then it's not going to be very good. I mean, we're basically just propagating the problem, kicking the can down the road, basically. So yes, so the bank's getting creative and looking at more behavioral attributes, like you said, uh, payment, frequency, account balances, and and there's a, it's it's very interesting and I could we could talk all day about it. There's some debate as to whether you should use um attributes like that are tied to somebody's identity status. For example, should you use the fact that they are a female or what their gender? And some some advocates will say no, 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 that that's that ruins the whole point. You know, we don't want to we don't want the algorithm to to be biased. We want them to be blind. But what we're finding is actually it's helpful for the model to be less biased knowing what the gender is because otherwise, I mean, due to historical societal um, prejudices, you know, the an, an average woman might look worse than an average male for no reason other than that she's a woman. So if the model doesn't know that this person's a woman, then they think, okay, these people are the same and this one's a little bit worse, so they're not going to be as credit worthy. But if we tell the algorithm, no, this, uh, if we tell them, you know, uh, what the gender is, and they can account for that difference and basically make them equal. So, so there's some debate there. Not debate. Well, there, there's some studies there showing that it might be actually beneficial to keep the protected attributes in. It's hard for some human beings to to accept that fact. They're like, well, that doesn't make sense. Anyway, there's um, and and, and stop me if I'm ranting and raving too much. You're fine. Exciting topic. <laughs> <laughs> it um, is a great topic. Where we're we going with this? Oh, uh, yeah. So other kinds of attributes that are helpful. Um, another thing is like zip code or postal code kind of thing. You know, historically, postal codes are very highly correlated with income and and long story short, whether the bank will give them a loan or not. Um, so again, the the initial reaction was, well, let's remove postal code from the model. But now we're finding, well, it actually, let's keep it in there so, so that they know what, like, the baseline expectation is. Like, someone from a poor postal code, yeah, maybe they're only depositing $50 a month, but for them, that's really good and it's a good sign. And, you know, compared to a affluent postal code who's depositing $500 every month, it looks horrible, but the, the algorithm can adjust if they know that for that postal code, this is actually really good behavior and this person is credit worthy, that kind of thing. We're letting the model understand the background of the individual. And it's kind of like, you know, when you're, when you're trying to, I'm going to come up with a really bad analogy on the fly here. Let's say you're trying to pick a, a, a sports, two sports teams from a mix of colleagues at work. So you've got some people who are really athletic, people who aren't, you've got big, strong guys, you've got little girls, you've got everything. 
And if you want to make the teams fair, you need to know as much as you can about each person. You wouldn't put all the the males together and all the six-year-old girls together and expect that to be a fair soccer game, that kind of thing. Um, but that doesn't mean the six-year-old soccer uh, girls aren't good at soccer and aren't going to have a great, you know, th- they need their chance to shine as well. So, yeah, maybe that's a bad analogy. Basically, the, the thing is, just because someone comes from a poor background um, or their their grandpa defaulted on a loan or pe- their neighbors defaulted on a loan or they don't make as much money, just because that's true in general doesn't mean that that person, that individual, doesn't deserve a chance and isn't doing well. So by kind of robbing all the things you – another way to say it is if someone hasn't had the advantages of life as a more affluent person, they didn't get um, – you know, their mom and dad didn't pay for them to go to Harvard and they didn't – they don't didn't start with the greatest job and they didn't start with all this – just because that's true doesn't mean they're not responsible, loan-worthy individuals. So if, right. if you, so we need to look at more of their behavior, but also the behavior for their upbringing or, or the, for their background. Uh, you can't compare all behaviors to each other because you're going to get a lot. It's going to be heavily weighted towards, oh, you don't make $100,000 a year and your parents don't, don't have a million dollars in assets. Well, then you're no good, even though that kind of thing. Right. It makes sense. Responsibility looks different for somebody making $50,000 a year than someone making $100,000 a year if you're just looking at raw numbers. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. So we're almost – it's true to say that we're changing the goalposts or changing the criteria for success in a way. But that, saying it that way makes it sound like we're like cheating in a way. But basically we're just trying to – we're letting the algorithm be fair. It's not fair to blind the algorithm from the background and the circumstances of the individual. It reminds me of the, so I used to be a teacher, Um, and it reminds me of the conversation we would have about equity versus equality where, uh, you know, equality is is giving everybody the same platform, but maybe somebody's trying to watch a baseball game and they actually need a two-foot stand versus the the one-foot stand you're giving everybody. Uh-huh, uh-huh, because they're uh-huh. short. <laughs> right. So equity is giving people what they need rather than the same thing. I was the director of one of our master's degree program a few years ago, and we came up across the same thing, really, which was, you know, we have a bunch of students apply, and some students have great resumes, you know, went to U of T, straight A's, uh, got a great job, all this stuff. And other students, you know, they're um, – uh, from a poor family, pretty bad. Not, I mean, not not a great college that they went to. Like they have, have great reference, but so at first you think, oh, let's just let in the people with the best grades from the best schools. But what we're but that is unfair because there are strong, smart, capable individuals who just need that chance to to shine, and they've done well given what they were given. It doesn't look good compared to everyone else, but. For them, it's great. And, you know, once they're in, and, and it's true, some of our best students have come from non-traditional backgrounds. And so you basically, uh, that's kind of what we're doing in, in the banking world as well. We're starting to learn with these models. Kind of the same ideas. There's not like a single number, like number of deposits or amount that you need to make each month that is good. It depends on your background. So we have to give the background information to the model for that to learn. Yeah. Um, 
So are there best practices that you've evolved in terms of this yet? It sounds like this is a still evolving field. Yeah, it's brand new, brand new. It's it's like the more we go, deeper we dive into it, the more we realize we haven't solved yet, which is good. I mean, um, at least we're looking into it. Best practices are, one is to just be aware that this is an issue, that um, if, if you don't, if you're not paying attention and you give your standard training, your standard training data to your standard model and make standard predictions, it's going to be unfair. It's going to be unfair, almost guaranteed. So that realization number one that this and more and more organizations are having this that okay that's not good enough anymore. So best practice number two is to actively measure um, how biased or unfair your predictions are. And there's some methodologies out there, but basically you want to look at the false positive, false negative rates of your model for each protected subclass. For example, if your model was really good at predicting which affluent white males should get a loan, but was really bad at predicting which uh, African women should be getting a loan. That's bad. That means it's going to make a lot of false positive and false negatives on the African women. So it's going to basically be denying African women rates, uh, loans that they should be giving out at a higher rate. So, so the model has, 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 is wrong. So it, if you kind of build this in the process to measure and, and quantify these things for each protected subgroup. I think in Canada there's 13, at least 13, or maybe 17 you should be looking at. Then that's step number one. At least you know what, what's going on. And then how to fix it. I don't know if there's any best practices that are general enough to apply to everybody. It depends on a lot of, on, it depends on a lot on what data they're using, what algorithms they're using, and how it's deployed. But there are some, you know, we're, we're building a body of knowledge bigger and bigger every day on how to how to address the issues on the technical side. So so far, no no great success stories. We're still working on it. Is that where we are? Well, I'll reach out to you. Like I said, um, like in the lab, in, in our like simulations and our tests, the really good success stories. Like we'll, we're finding tens of thousands of loans that were denied that should not have been, for example. And, you know, this has huge potential impact to society, massive. Like, there's a societal aspect of this, too. You know, it's like, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's many ways you can look at this. There's, like, from the bank's point of view, lost revenue that they're making or that they're they're missing out on. From the, from the individual's point of view, it's, you know, uh, customer lifetime value and all this stuff. And then from society point of view, you know, this is great. You know, it's spurring the economy. It's giving... Uh, solid, responsible people that boost and that, that boost they need for that loan, that house. And, and you have a certification, right, for AI? Is that right? Yeah, that we have a, a exec ed uh, program. I think that's what you're, you're thinking of called uh, Trusted AI. And it's a um, partnership with IEEE, which is a leading engineering institute. And, yeah, so we've delivered that a few times. And, you know, we talk about all of these issues, you know, how to – how to measure, uh, you know, the, the whole area of ethics is, is, is really taking off. It, it's, it's, it's a really good thing that organizations are starting to realize this, but it's also very scary because we realize that no one knows what they're doing yet. <laughs> and, you know, there's machine learning algorithms out there running every single day that are totally guaranteed 100% biased and unethical. 
and people just didn't even realize it. They didn't even know to look out for it earlier. So it's a huge problem, but at least we know that it's out there. But with, with regulations like uh, GDPR from Europe, that was a huge, good first step. I know Ontario is thinking of similar things, maybe as soon as this year, putting into place. Um, and even Europe is going to tighten it even more. Um, so there's a lot of news. California is moving fast on this as well. So there's a lot happening. We, we're living right in the middle, or maybe like towards the beginning. So things change rapidly every single day. I think in five or ten years, we'll look back and think, wow, I can't believe we used to do it that way. But right now, people, people are still very disorganized and trying to figure out what to do. You've been listening to The Buzz, a Bank Automation News podcast. Thank you for your time, and be sure to visit us at bankautomationnews.com for more automation news. You can also follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Please don't hesitate to rate this podcast on your podcast platform of choice.